0: All right, well, we've been going at this for about almost three days now, and I suspect people might be a little burned out, um, but more importantly, people may be burned out from having dealt with COVID and a lot of other stresses of what we do every day. So we're, we're very excited. Um, Nadine Kaslow Caslow is a, a psychiatrist from a uh, psychologist sorry, from um, Emory, and she has um, done some wonderful uh, Zoom sessions, if you will, for a lot of us who have been struggling with the thought of burnout or burnout among our colleagues. And we thought it would be important kind of uh, for all of us to see and hear this uh, interaction. So we have a panel that's going to come up, and uh, Nadine's going to take us through Some conversation about this, and I'll keep the iPad on. So, if you want to make comments, I'll interject that as we go. So, Dean, welcome.
1: Great, thanks. Good afternoon. Can you all hear me okay? All right, so a few weeks ago, I um, gave a little talk about this topic for a group similar to yours in LA. Afterwards, somebody said, Oh, well, the reason we invite you is because you're the only depressing person that ever talks about burnout and wellness. Um, and I think really what they meant is that I'm not maybe as upbeat as other people are because I've been on the front lines and I have a sense of how challenging this really has been for everybody. So we're going to have a panel to talk about this today of people who have been on the front lines, and they're going to join me in this conversation. Some of you may have um, listened in about a year or a year and a half ago when we did this with um, on a Zoom call um, where we had a similar group of uh, very senior uh, ID people uh, talking about their experience. And one of the things that I'll always remember from that was that um, we had to have a practice session. Why do we have to have a practice session? So that people could practice talking about their feelings in public. So this group did not have a practice <laughs> section. So hopefully they'll be able to talk about their feelings in public. Um, I have nothing to disclose, and, uh, no financial conflicts to disclose. Um, And so hopefully what you'll get after this is a sense of how you can better take care of yourselves, uh, avoid burnout and be resilient, and also a little bit better sense of what our organizations can do to mitigate against uh, burnout. So why are we talking about this now? Well, just a show of hands. How many of you have felt burned out in the past two years? Raise your hand. Okay, that's the why now. Um, I mean, COVID has been really intense. We've had all the social injustice issues and everything else is just mounted as well. So we're gonna talk a little bit about burnout, about resilience and wellness, what you can do at the individual level, what our organizations can do as well. So I think we all know that burnout has um, multiple sort of components to it, symptoms of it, and we all experience it differently. So I'm gonna turn to our panel now and ask first that you each introduce yourselves. And as you introduce yourself, if you could share a little bit about how you know when you or somebody else is burned out. So why don't we start here with you, Jill? Introduce yourself and let us know how you know when you're burned out.
2: Hey everyone, Um, I'm Jill Blumenthal, I use she, her pronouns. Uh, I'm at UCSD, I'm an infectious diseases provider there, also an associate professor um, in the Department of Medicine. Oh, this is a good question and I was nervous you were gonna start with me. Um, Actually, for me, I know it's happening because I actually make... um, I do something with my hand. I I do, you know, I, I do the, um, I'm rubbing my eyes together and I realize that I'm just so exhausted um, and I realize I've been doing it more and more in the last few years, because it makes me think of another provider who trained me and I knew when she was sort of feeling like there's just so much going on, she was doing it. Now I'm doing it too. Um, and, you know, I think I noticed that for different people, they have different, um, you know, physical expression of their of their burnout. Are we saving the what causes yep. us to feel
1: burnout we for are. later? We are. Okay. All right, so <laughs> there's, you know, some kind of physical indicator that you're feeling burned
3: out. Hi, everyone. My name is Lisa Cruz. I am a family doc and I practice at Neighborhood Family Practice, which is a community health center in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I know I always said residency taught me that when I'm really tired and burnout, I cry. Like I'm not a normal crier, but like there was a whole time someone offered me pretzels and I burst into tears. <laughs> um, and in, I think one of the things I like is I get to work in a team because of Ryan White Care, and I notice it in other team members. And like one of my case manager will like just stop talking to people sometimes and that's when I know we need to surround her a little more
1: okay so you cry somebody else stops talking to people I want to share a little bit of something I heard about crying so when I was really early in my career one of my bosses at the time told me that I should never look like I was going to cry or cry in the workplace and I bet I'm not the only person in the room that got that message either explicitly or implicitly. And so I actually um, bought that message and didn't look like I was going to cry and didn't cry. Um, and really, until I was president of the American Psychological Association and I went to introduce uh, Representative John Lewis, who I was giving a presidential citation to. And I credited him as being my mentor in advocacy. And when I started to talk about that and what that had meant to me in my life and my career, I got choked up and I went to stop myself and Representative Lewis stood up and said, no, no, Nadine, those tears are tears of courage and passion. You cannot be effective in the world without those tears as the energy behind your advocacy. So in honor of John Lewis, Go cry. (laughs) (laughs) Go for it, Michelle.
4: Great, thank you. Um, And thanks to everyone for staying. You all are the real champions. You're here at the end. (laughs) Um, So my name is Michelle Ogle, and I'm complicated. Um, I'm an assistant professor of pediatrics at Einstein College in the Bronx. And I am still very much involved in my Ryan White program in North Carolina. I'm still running that program, so I'm complicated. So how do I know when I'm burned out? I have two things for myself. One is when I wake up tired, I don't normally wake up tired. Even if I don't get a lot of sleep, I'm pretty wound up in my personality anyway. But when I wake up and I'm really tired, I know that I need a break. Um, And the second indication for me is what, and anybody who knows we're all here, we all love our patients, right? I love my kids. But when they're sitting there talking to me and I'm going, I don't really even care. Um, what you're saying to me right now because I don't want to hear it. Then I know I need a break, I'm burned out. Those are my two, my two indications. Okay,
1: thanks. So that's the real apathy that they talk about a lot with burnout. We keep hearing about the physical signs here. All right.
5: I get to follow complicated. I'm, <laughs> I'm not so complicated. My name's Amy Davis. It's nice to see you all and thanks for all y'all do. Um, I'm a family physician in Western Colorado, in Grand Junction. And I um, have been caring for people living with HIV for 23 years. Um, I do that half time and I teach family practice residents. So this is a, a topic that's near and dear to my heart because of you know feeling for younger practitioners. Something that I don't, I think it took a little longer and I don't, it'll be interesting to hear what other people's experiences have been. I think I know when I'm burnt out, when there's an irritability, that's like your fingernails on the chalkboard. Um, and even more important and more disturbing is when I lose my curiosity for my patients. I think I love listening to narrative and talking to people and hearing them share their stories. And when I don't want to hear them or I feel like I can't listen to another story, I think that's a, that's a, a sign.
1: Absolutely. So we're we're increasingly, as we go down the line hearing about how it doesn't just affect us and what we show, but also how it affects the care we provide.
0: Yeah, so I'm Mike Sag, and um, I've been here for the last two and a half days with all of you. What, when I know I'm burned out is um, I get frustrated, irritable, and uh, I usually take it out on my social media passwords. <laughs> And I start creating (laughs) strings of expletives uh, in my (laughs) password. So that's when I know that I'm in trouble.
1: You were burned out earlier today when I asked if we were having lunch together. And you told me, no, you were too
0: burned out. And then I can't remember what they were. So they have to, it's a mess.
1: All right. But again, we're getting that kind of irritable, sort of not really having control of things we would normally have control over. Thanks a lot to all of you for Sharing. I guess what I would add for myself is that I don't feel like I have much of a sense of purpose in my life, that there's a sense that I'm just going through the motions, but nothing really feels very meaningful to me. So we're going to start down with you, Mike. (laughs) So um, what causes you to feel burned out? And now try to be serious for like one
4: minute. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck with
0: that. I think it's a combination of things. The way I'd liken it is um, I think all of us have an emotional shock absorber. At least I do. And when I'm pretty healthy and feeling okay, then the normal things that would be irritating, I can absorb and kind of move on. When that absorber gets thin and little things sort of set me off into writing these strings of expletives, then I I notice, okay, wait, there's something going on here. I think taking... Some time off is good if you can afford that. Um, Trying just to get away. Uh, but I think that's my that's my internal uh, sort of metric or, or uh, what's the right word, uh, monitor for myself is if I sense that the little things that normally I realize are irritating, but I can move, plow through it like a new rule from how to use the EMR or a new uh, module that I have to take for my uh, health institution or my academic institution for uh, compliance or something like that, or filling out another conflict of interest form or whatever it is, I usually can say, oh, I hate this, but uh, I plow through. And if I get to the point where I'm really angry or uh, frustrated or start acting out in ways that are might be humorous at times, but are more dysfunctional, then I know I'm in, I need to, think about things.
1: Right, and so I think what you're suggesting is it isn't necessarily some big thing that burns you out, but it's the accumulation of a lot of little things, and then it can be one more thing on the stack.
5: It's so individual, I think, and we all have different things which may sort of tip us over. I don't know if any of you have written, uh, have read a book called Drive by Daniel Pink, and there's a really nice, triad of things, um, autonomy, and actually I would reverse that, purpose, mastery, and autonomy. And if, if, for me, if those three things aren't in balance, it's a problem. So having purpose, for most of us in the room, I think is probably an easier one. Um, we're lucky to have meaningful work, and as long as I feel like I have meaningful work, meaningful life, that's, a, that's in the, on the plus column. Mastery is important. If we don't feel like we're very good at what we do, that doesn't feel great. Um, And the longer we do this and we get to come to meetings like this and interact with folks, I think that helps. I think the hardest is autonomy. Depending on where we work, who we work for, who we work with, autonomy can really take a hit. And when we don't feel like we have control over things and don't have that autonomy, that's a really tough one for me and I think that um, drives a lot of my colleagues into despair when there's a couple pieces that are going really well but they don't they feel hopeless and they have an inability to to change their circumstances
1: yeah thanks a lot and I hope that we can get back to that autonomy issue when we talk about organizational things that people can do because autonomy is less of an individual strategy to mitigate burnout and much more of an organizational strategy so I think that that is really critically important. I think the issue of mastery, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic, none of us had any mastery. And I remember um, really early on in the pandemic, uh, we were starting to run all sorts of support groups and the hospital asked if we would run a, a support group for healthcare providers who were COVID positive. And this is like in April or something. And so my student who was gonna be doing this calls me the day before and is like, well, what do I do? And I said, well, I don't know. Why are you calling me? And she said, well, you're my supervisor. I said, well, how am I supposed to know what you're supposed to do with COVID positive people in the support group? I never ran a support group like that before. And she's like, well, this was not helpful. (laughs) And I said, yeah, well, honestly, I don't know anything helpful. So she has this support group and she calls me afterwards and she says, well, you shouldn't ask them to turn their cameras on. That's, that's my first bit of advice. If, if they have COVID, they can't turn their cameras on. They don't have the energy to do that and they don't look good and whatever. And I was like, okay, well now we know something about running support groups for people who are COVID positive. And I think that is an experience every person in this room had, that we didn't know something on Monday, on Tuesday, we learned one thing, and on Wednesday, we learned something else. And then on Thursday, it was different. And what we learned on Tuesday and Wednesday weren't true anymore. And that sense of mastery, was like, one step forward, two steps back, and um, we were like flailing about in the wind. And I think that mastery really, really affected all of us. What causes you to feel burned out?
4: Um, So I can equate it to the more administrative responsibilities that are put on us as providers that really Causes me to burn out because, um, as clinicians, we like to take care of people. Um, but then, when you get um, an email, you need to close your notes, or you get something else that says you need to do something else um, that you're responsible for. Um, that that really gets me burned out. But I'm gonna add something, Mike. I'm, I'm gonna embarrass you because you're not gonna remember this. Um, but you and you're not going to remember this, but um, you and I, we were in DC in one of our meetings, and I was having one of these burnout days where it's like I was getting emails, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do this. And being a PI on a Ryan White program, you need to do this, you need to do that. And I started like complaining to you. I was just like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. This is such a bad choice. I, mean, I was just, and, and you just looked at me like I was crazy. And at the end of looking at me like I was crazy, you said, when you wake up, is there anything else you would rather do? And I never answered him because I had to think about it. And the answer to that was no. So whenever, so I, I recall that moment. So whenever I start feeling like I'm overwhelmed with a lot of administrative things, a lot of things that I have to do that are my responsibility, I center myself back, is there anything else I would rather do? Well, so.
1: And that's really great. And that gets back to that purpose. See, you don't remember that. I,
0: I thought I answered you back by going. <laughs> I don't, uh, maybe that's what I was thinking inside.
1: But you are getting us back to that sense of purpose and what our values what our values really are and not surprisingly for any of you who work in health systems you would not be surprised to know that one of the biggest predictors of burnout is a Jaco site visit)
3: oh. <laughs> So This is the, the downside of going the other way. I mean, I, I do completely agree. It's the administrative stuff. Like, I, I, I don't mind doing the harder work for a patient. But when someone who I feel like they sit in front of a computer all the time, and then are mad that I'm not seeing my email right away, like, because I'm in the EMR, and it, you can't be in both at the same time. Um, that gets me. <laughs> um, But I also find it interesting because as each of you have brought it, we're supposed to answer the like, what causes you to feel burnout? Everybody has given the two of. And then this is what I do. Like, we feel like we have to fix it right away too, which I think is just because we are doing purposeful work and we want to be able to stick with it. And so we're going to try to dig ourselves out right away. But um, sometimes being able to do the complaining with somebody who gets it is really useful, I think.
1: Yeah, that's why the last group had a practice because just sitting with the burnout is hard.
2: I echo what everyone said. Um, As someone who may be a little bit more junior um, with this group, I I don't really know that. Um, What I have felt as I've now gone into the beginning of the middle of my career, um, I mean, for a while I really could never... Say no to things. It felt like, mm-hmm. um, and I think a lot of I've had discussions with this, uh, like this, with a lot of my my colleagues who are um, you know sort of same age, same same steps in our career. Um, it often ends up being a lot of cis women who feel this way, um, but sort of that having to say yes to things, whether we want to or not, the feeling that we're not you know. Pitching in when we should be. Um, And now as I've sort of entered maybe a newer phase, I I feel like I can say no to some things, but then that comes along with the guilt of saying no. Um, And I think those constant, you know, exercises and fights in my brain of what do I wanna do can, yeah, can can really burn me out and exhaust me. Oh, again? Oh. So
1: she's newer in her career, so she has to, to turn her mic on. Did anyone hear that? <laughs> Thanks. I guess the one thing I would add is when I'm truly not doing anything to take care of myself. When I'm, when I'm just not doing anything. I don't mean not taking a vacation, but I mean like nothing. And that will add to it, and that will add to it pretty quickly. I had a situation during the... Pandemic, relatively early during the pandemic, when I um, was, uh, I take Zoom ballet. I was a professional ballet dancer, and so I was doing Zoom ballet. And so I was in my office doing a, an advanced Zoom ballet class in my office, you know, trying not to kick the bookshelves, not to kick the desk, not to do this. And there's obviously an emergency and my cell phone starts going and my texts start going and I can see my emails popping up and dinging. And so I decide, well, obviously there's a crisis, I need to handle this. And so I am handling a crisis while the ballet teacher is teaching and the music's playing and I'm doing ballet. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, you know, if I was in a ballet class, like a regular one, my purse would be over there with my cell phone I wouldn't hear it. It would be on vibrate. And I wouldn't be, whatever this crisis was, either someone else would take care of it or it would wait or whatever. But somehow the blurring of the boundaries, whether you teleworked or you just did all this stuff on Zoom or whatever it was, made it harder to take care of ourselves. So I would add that one. All right, does everybody know what secondary traumatization is? Everybody know what that is or do we need a definition before we have a question? Definition. All right, so secondary traumatization is essentially you bear witness to somebody else's story and then you feel the effects of their story. Somebody tells you about the horrific things that happened in their lives, You are part of a code gone awry. Um, Something happens out there and it traumatizes you. The other person's trauma traumatizes you. That's secondary, traumatization. So I'm gonna open this to any order now. Um, for anyone to talk a little bit about their experiences of secondary traumatization and how you've sort of dealt with that.
4: That question is traumatizing. (laughs) That question is traumatizing,
1: which is understandable. I'm sorry. I have office hours after this Um, panel.
4: I'll just, I'll start off and say, so I primarily, I take care of adolescents and young adults living with HIV and those not. And then my work I do gender affirming care for young people living with HIV, and those are at risk. And majority of my practice are people of color in the Bronx. And the transgender girls, when they tell their stories, um, how they're rejected, how they were kicked out of their home, how their family doesn't love them. um, I think those are the stories collectively that that I carry um, because they're kids. And so that secondary traumatization with those kids, um, have caused me to do something, um, with them. And what I do to deal with that is I tell them, you know, how much I care about them. I love them. I'm here to make them the people they want to be. But then what I tell them is you can't go a wall on me. You can't not show up for an appointment and not answer calls, because then I think you're dead. So that secondary trauma has caused me to kind of put something back on them. Um, to let them know if I don't hear from you, then that that's affecting and traumatizing me.
1: That thank you for that honesty. And um, you sort of become a mom or a dad or a parent to them, mom and a dad and a parent to them. And um, yeah, you love them. And, and it's going to stress you out more. And that's really a lovely story. I
2: mean, there isn't, <clears throat> there usually is not a day that I'm in clinic where this doesn't happen. Um, I think, I again talked about this with a lot of my colleagues. Um, I like probably a lot of people here um, are, are people with a lot of empathy and we, it's hard to just hear something and go, okay. <laughs> um, so you feel it, you and you wear it and you think about it. Um, you probably, maybe if you have time, you'll share it with someone else so that maybe you're traumatizing that person because now you're passing it on to them, but maybe maybe it's less for me now and I'm giving it to someone else. Um, but, you know, it it is it feels like a heaviness to me. Um, and I, I know I already used the word guilt, but I think sometimes, you know, when I'm, <laughs> feel guilty a lot of the time. If I'm experiencing this secondary traumatization which I recognize, I then say, but I get to go home to my house with my husband, my dog, my stepdaughter and things are pretty good there. Um, I can leave this. So yes, I experienced it, but then there's this, you know how sh- shouldn't I be carrying it for longer? So huh. It's exhausting so just part talking of it, about. Part of
1: what you do is talk to people, and another part is try to get some perspective. Yeah.
3: Lisa Damore is a clinical psychologist in, in the Cleveland area who works with a lot of high schools and worked with my daughter's high school, and she talks about when your kids are little and they, like, hand you their sticky juice box or they hand you their dirty tissue and you don't really want it, but you take it because that's <laughs> your job. <laughs> and, and she talks about how adolescents do this with their emotional trash and you just like take it right away again. But that image has really helped me that like, I have picked up this dirty tissue that helped the other person because I took it for a minute, but that I need to go do it. And then I need to wash my hands and then I can move on a little bit. And so that's been a helpful, just visual, her, her book is great and full of these little tidbits if you have a minute, um, but it, it, it helps me with thinking, okay, I've got it, but it's. I don't have to keep it. I don't know why I took it,
4: but I don't have to keep it. Right.
1: That's a great image.
4: Yeah.
1: Yes. <laughs> so that that's really what what she said is that she could
3: the microphone yep
1: oh, yeah. yep so yeah so what what she just said and i'll do my best to paraphrase is that and then we'll have people come to the mic after this is that um is that people come and they share their stories that you're the empathy queen and that's one of your patients shared that just having them being able to come and have you listen and have it stay there is what really mattered. And I think that, that the piece of that that's really important is that it can stay in the space, but it doesn't have to stay inside of you. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to stay sticky on your hands. Um. <laughs> okay. Well, and, and and actually I think that's, um, you know, part of what matters. And you said, talk to people. I once, had a teacher who talked about having a cuddle group. And that's sort of the group of people that you can turn to, to talk to about that. And so that it doesn't come inside, you have people that you can share it with, so so that while you hold it, you're holding it outside. Yeah, that's great. All right, so personal strategies and what you do to take care of yourselves. Now, one of the things that I'm gonna say up front that's really important is what we each do is different. What works for each one of us is different. There is no best way, right way. Oh, you feel burned out. If you did this thing, that would work. I think probably we've all had that experience of being burned out and people say, did you try this? Did you try that? Did you try this? And basically that's what they do. And nine times out of 10, what they do is not gonna work for us. So I think what's most helpful is to think about what's worked for you in the past, what you like to do, what um, fits into your lifestyle based on what's going on. And I don't want you to feel like whatever strategies you're hearing about today, these are the right strategies or the best strategies. We just wanna get an array of strategies. So um, let's see. Michelle, you can go first. What personal strategies do you use to mitigate burnout and foster your resilience and well
4: being? Um, I run um, at least three times a week, at least two and a half miles, no matter what. Um, I use that time to reflect on a lot of things and also to take off of me some of the stuff that I've taken on that day. Parts that week. I also like to read. Um, I like to read, okay, we're all friends, right? I like to read trashy novels, Um, (laughs) drug, sex, and violence in it. That works for me. Um, And then, and I also get to play with my dog. So I get to escape. And those are the ways that I, I escape from, from what I'm dealing with. All
1: right. So how many runners do we have in the room? How many readers? How many dog people? All right. We have three winners here. Who wants to go next?
5: So I think, I, like a lot of people, I have short-term things and long-term things, because there's the day-to-day grind, and then there's sort of when you feel like you're just stale. I run too. I can't meditate to save my life, so I run and I fly fish, because fly fishing particularly you're just focused on the water and the sort of wildlife around you and figuring out where that fish is gonna be and what it's gonna eat. Um, So those are short-term things though. And I think from a long-term point of view, which helps us do the marathon instead of just the sprint, there's been a pattern for me of reinventing myself and finding something new that catches my fancy. And And I mean this both professionally and personally, but professionally, finding something that sort of ignites my curiosity, my interest, helps with that purpose piece, but is also fun. And so I think having short-term things is great, but having something that's more of a longer thing has really helped me not lose sort of my love for what I'm doing.
1: So that's really wonderful advice. Thank you. How many fly fishers do we have in here? a couple okay we have a couple some more of you might want to try it and how many of you have reinvented yourselves professionally as a way to help yourselves I would actually say all of y'all to try that one because it really really can make a huge difference
3: I I've never been really good at finding those shorter term things like people suggest things and I'm not one who's really latched on, but I think what I do, even it's not as erudite as reading trashy. Now, I watch trashy shows like I still watch General Hospital on repeat every <laughs> night because it's routine in my day and I don't have to really think while I watch it. And it's been the same since I was in high school. Totally. So totally it's, totally it's kind totally of like a security blanket, I think. Um Longer term, honestly, like I'm so glad we're back in person. Things like this are really good for me. I called this particular conference my Island of Misfit Toys Conference because <laughs> we're not all quite primary care. I'm family medicine, and we're not all quite primary care. We're not all quite ID. But for a week, everybody gets it. Everybody understands what we're going through. We have the same kinds of patients. We have the same kinds of stressors. And I feel like I'm not alone as much in the work by checking in with other people like this.
1: That's great. So how many of you watch trashy TV? (laughs) That one is a very popular one. And what's interesting is before the pandemic, no one admitted to that one. That was like a closeted (laughs) self-care strategy. That one has clearly made it to the public. Um, And um, and then connecting with people in person. And I would suspect that's true for lots of people as
4: well. Speaking of trashy TV, anybody watch P-Valley? No, mm. Nobody here yes. watches P-Valley? Uh, you watch yeah. P-Valley? Yes.
1: yes. Yes. Okay. And yes. so now I'm we're going to share trashy TV shows.
4: Trashy T- P-Valley. Watch well, it.
2: Bravo, bravo, and more bravo, I think, is <laughs> where a lot of us land. That's Yaga. definitely been fun for me. Um, I... Um, I've been watching a lot of dog videos too. I'm, you know, the the Twitter thing is really that's, it's not helping. And and now it keeps sending me more dog videos because I keep watching dog videos. That definitely makes me smile. And these are all my my little short-term things. Um, Something that I've found to be, I hope I'm not making the residents or the fellows that I'm working with, feel like they have to do it. Um, I've, when we're in the middle of something, very complicated patient, we're on rounds in the hospital and we're just, you know, the pages are going off sometimes i I've tried this a few times and it actually seemed to really work um we we shut the lights and we just took three collective breaths together and we just like we all slowed down and I said, "Are we ready to get back to it again and and that really seemed to be very useful and it's something I'd like to try to do more obviously not long term more short term in that moment
1: and you know somebody mentioned they don't um meditate, and probably there are meditators in here and there's the, I don't meditate in here group. Um, and those are fine. Um, I, I have seen increasingly um, services that meditate at the beginning of rounds, at the end of rounds or in the middle of rounds. And somehow when a service do, line does it together, like for seven minutes, somehow everybody can meditate. But when people do it alone, many people can't. And when they see the impact on the whole team, um, a lot of people can do it. So if your service is stressed out, if you have time for three breaths, take them. If you have a time for seven minutes, I would say that take that too. Um, Yeah, Yeah. I know, I didn't forget you.
0: Yeah, well, just for me um i, I make a very poor attempts at humor and short term <laughs> and long term i play golf which is uh, isolation like fly fishing except um, it creates more frustration than i could ever find at work so <laughs> i feel better when i go back to work especially when i, I had to pay for that round of golf and <laughs> lost seven balls in the process at two dollars and fifty cents each so i feel good when i'll go back to work after that um, I, I, we're getting a lot of comments from the audience. I think I might share some of this. Okay, um, the, one one series of things is the onus of burnout. Um, sometimes feel like it's placed on the healthcare provider, but it's not so much on the system. And the we, system. Which is
1: where we're going to go with the organizational part in a few minutes.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yes.
1: Agree. Um, Thank you. We'll get there in a second.
0: And then um, there's a lot about the EMR and that causing problems and. Um, And seeing staff around us who are burning out sort of is dysphoric uh, because we might be doing okay, but then we see them struggling and then maybe that's kind of a secondary trauma of sorts. And you want to do something, but you don't want to overstep boundaries. And um, so I think having formal um, sessions, lack of a better word, where the staff can just be themselves can be helpful.
1: Yeah, I mean, I really agree. And I think that one of the things we've seen during the pandemic is how much actually having a chance for staff to talk and staff can be anybody in this room. I mean, there's different, I don't, I'm using that term healthcare providers and everybody related to talk is really important, but it's really amazing, especially now that people are back in person, what a pizza can do for people, what um, just hanging out together uh, can do for people and what checking in with somebody can do when somebody's having a hard time. We just had a, a member of our team, one of our residents was at their sister's wedding and uh, their, uh, a different brother-in-law was murdered at the wedding, sort of one of those drive-by random things. And we sent her a gift to the house. I mean, there's nothing you can do. It's just horrific. You can give somebody days off. You can say you don't have to see gunshot, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, and we sent her a gift to the house. And and she she said that made all the difference in the world, just feeling like people took the time to think about it, to get her address, to find things out. And I think people are really needing a lot of support right now. And a lot of you can come to a meeting like this, but a lot of people are not able to come to meetings like this to get rejuvenated. So I think that's really, really important. We will get to the organizational thing in a minute. What was the? There was a middle thing.
0: Say again, I'm sorry. There was a third
1: topic. There was organization, there was staff, and there was- EMR. Oh, EMR.
4: Uh,
1: <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. I, we've used Epic at one hospital I worked at for ever. with the other hospital, which means most everyone had used it already decided to take the whole health system there two weeks ago. And my daughter's also a psychologist and her doctor wrote her an email at night, her PCP, and said, are you providing care for Epic Stress Disorder? It (laughs) looks somewhere between acute Epic Stress Disorder and post-traumatic Epic Stress Disorder. Um, Yeah, I mean, why health systems do things like this in the middle of pandemics? Talking about organizations like thinking about when they're going to make changes, rolling them out in a reasonable way, providing adequate support, and making decisions that take into account the well being of the people that the decisions are going to affect. Mm. And when I think about an organizational strategy, to me, number one on that list is is whatever change we're going to make. So we got Epic two weeks ago and today we get an email, we're changing our conflict of interest process. It's like seriously, you couldn't wait till next year to change the con- like you already see people aren't doing well. Why why are you doing this? Like thinking about decisions and how they impact people's well-being. Most decisions are made based on how they impact money how they are for the people making them. But I really think that part of the organizational rethinking has to be what's in everyone's emotional best interest, which quite frankly, I don't think most organizations have thought about before. I don't think most healthcare systems have thought about before, but people are dropping like flies, not able to do our jobs the way we want to do them. And there are ways our organizations can make it a lot easier. So we, I get it. We need an electronic medical records. Nobody's going to argue with that. But they, they need to be made in a way that works for us, not that we work for them.
0: I don't want to sit up here and defend the EMR too much. But I will say that when I get frustrated with an EMR, I, I pause and think back to what was life like before it. I think we forget that. But when somebody calls, a patient calls, and then you got to find the paper chart, and you can't find it, or it's in somebody else's office, and it's in a stack, and then you get the chart, and then you got to thumb through to see, well, who is this person? Wait a minute. Okay, there you go. What did I say? The EMR makes that a lot easier, and if you do rounds in the hospital, I know a lot of us are outpatient. I mean, ID rounds used to last for seven hours because you had to go to go to x-ray and then you had to go to micro and then you had to go see the patient and the chart wasn't on the floor. There are advantages, but with it comes a lot of torus, if you know what that word means. Trouble. <laughs> badness. Evil. <Yeah.
5: laughs> Could I um, tag off on this, sort of like a devil's advocate? Um I agree, but then I disagree and I don't know if you're going to touch upon this in this organization piece that is inherent with us becoming more isolated because of how we work. I don't know if you were going to touch on that.
1: So I'm actually going to skip the question and go to the organization question um, <laughs> because I, I think we can get there and I hear there's a lot of questions okay. and comments. What has your organization leader or you, for those of you who are leaders, done to prevent burnout and build a wellness culture and how successful has that been? And then the next question is going to be, and what would you like to do? And we can get to yours and what would you like to do? So what have you already done that's, that's worked?
2: Can I start with what doesn't work? Maybe no. No, okay.
1: <laughs> we will be here till tomorrow or next year. No, what works? Sorry, that was not a good therapist thing to do. Sure, you can talk about whatever feeling you want to talk about, but we all know there's a thousand things that don't work. What does work? What's worked? What's made a difference?
4: I I don't know if I want, on an organizational level, forget about it, Um, but as a leader of my program, um, I actually pay attention to my staff I know they work actually harder than I do in a lot of ways. And so um, I've made it uh, an effort, a conscientious effort, to make sure people don't stay late, they don't come early, they're not working when they're off, don't pay, don't call someone on their cell phone um, when they're not working. We do um, bonding things together for my staff, um, individual's birthday. They get to pick what they want for lunch. We all have lunch together as a team. Um, so I try to pay attention to that. And when I see somebody kind of losing it, um, I will give them permission to leave early. I, I know I shouldn't be sent; i will getting in trouble, but we'll, we make sure that they don't lose time and pay, uh, to let them leave a little earlier. So in my world where I have control, I try to utilize it, uh, because on the organizational level, just forget about it uh, in terms of what individuals need, um, At at What what your staff may need at an individual level, the organization may not want to address or be able to, even though I I don't want to knock my organization, Einstein, uh, Montefiore Hospital, they do a lot of wellness things for people. They have all kinds of exercise classes, they have a lot of things for people, but on an individual level, um, that personal touch from us to our staff, I think means a lot more and helps them.
1: Okay, so that is fabulous advice that it may have to be done at a certain level and that a personal touch is really critical, can make a difference. What else?
3: I wonder if Amy has the same um, opinion. I'm at a small community health center. And so I think we only have family medicine folks, MPs and docs um, in the provider roles. And so there is a strong culture in our organization, it's not necessarily a wellness culture, but it is a belonging culture. And so it's something to build off of. I don't know if you have the same sense being in a residency program, but I do think the reason I'm there is because I can't do the big hospital systems without competing goals very well. It just doesn't work for me. So
1: so I think the advice from that is the extent to which you can have
3: a belonging- A belonging and con, a culture. I don't know culture. Culture. it's similar. In your,
5: in I, I would agree. and it, it, if I can save some of this for the what would we like to see, but I, I think having a sense of common mission, common goal and a solidarity really helps. In a, in the small piece that's our residency program, we have faculty meetings, we talk about sort of joys and losses. Um, and so we can do that together. And my colleagues who, are more isolated in private practice, maybe or in smaller practices don't necessarily have that. And then there's a schism between ambulists and hospitalists. We, I'm like old enough to remember paper charts and sitting at a yeah. desk and talking about my patient and saying, so what do you think to the neurologist? And oh, by the way, how's your kid? And they just graduated and oh, is not that cool. Or are you gonna have a grandkid? And so we had connections and relationship that added to that sort of solidarity. And there is a continued isolation that I think has occurred with more electronic records, more specialization, ambulance, hospitalists. And in the sort of looping back around to uh, your statement, Lisa, I feel really fortunate in a residency program because we do have in our small part of the world that um, camaraderie, that mission to sort of help and teach residents, but also to, Advocate for each other and our professional um, interests. So there's a built in mentorship and um, advocacy for our narratives.
2: So, Mike. Please. Please. Okay. so our clinic has a morning huddle every morning, which I can't always attend, but it always starts with uh, kudos, which has been—it started during the the pandemic. Well, these meetings started during the pandemic; we weren't doing them. Um, and it really is nice to hear what other people are doing, things that they've done to go, you know, above and beyond, or just something that um, someone was really grateful for. And I think. Hearing those things can kind of you know can start you off on the right foot uh, on a particular day. Um, I, I was just thinking so much about what you were saying for the isolation piece. And you know, and so this isn't what what has done well, it's gonna say the bad things again. <laughs> just kidding. Well, I'm, I'm trying, I'm gonna to try to reframe it so when I think about this. Um i (laughs) maybe i can't reframe it yet um i i do think okay i think when we're with um you know when we're with trainees when we're with uh people who are newer to this and i know i'm still part of that group i think doing the i'm thinking about this when i'm in the hospital oh well we'll just look at the x-ray and we'll just leave it here why don't we go talk to the radiologists and see what they're what they're seeing that, you know, so interesting here. Why don't we go find team six? I think they're on the ninth floor. Let's go talk to them. Um, And I think sometimes it's a, well, that's going to take more time. Well, it's going to help you get to know other people. They're going to put, you know, a face to a name. So I think trying to go go backwards a little bit saying, we don't need to just secure chat someone and give them the recommendations. Let's do this face to face. And it's something that I really um, try to instill in the, in the trainees and others that I'm working with. Great, thanks.
0: So our institution's done something that's a little corny and I didn't like it at first, but I actually see it working is they created a whole wellness enterprise. They had signed a chief wellness officer who they call you're sitting down Dr. Well B. and <laughs> i'm not kidding and um, and but, but and actually over time because it's been consistent, and it's been frequent messaging, and there actually is. You can send in complaints about some of which I see here that the audience is like how many how much time do you have per patient, and that has been sped up ironically by the emr. because. You can—they they force you to do. They can track things, which mm-hmm. is a little concerning. But actually, that it—it's been implemented. There's been changes because of this advocate in the upper level administration that makes a difference. I also think back to a lot of you who are gray hair like me, but you remember um, there was a different kind of burnout in the early days of AIDS, where the burnout was from losing patients lots of them, Mm -hmm. mostly our age. And the way we dealt with that was by group discussions, but also a lot of events with the clinic staff for bonding and for learning about each other a little more. Um, uh, Not just, uh, sometimes it was picnics, sometimes it was games. Like literally we had like an Olympics uh, that that we all competed in and um, uh, we had to, uh, I got injured and uh, that was no fun. (laughs) Um, and, and, but those types of things that kind of help carry us through. So there are, well, I guess the take-home point is formal leader, leadership, creating formal venues, formal ways through things actually work. And it's the frequency, the consistency of messaging, and above all, responsiveness where you can uh, about making changes when complaints come in.
1: Thanks. So I'm sure it's not lost on any of you that they had way more to say about what they personally did than what went well organizationally. And I think this is essentially why we still have so much burnout. Because I actually think that if we had way more to say organizationally, we wouldn't have this panel. Um, So what would you like your organization leader or yourself to do? to make a difference. So I'm gonna let you go first since you can been like chomping at the bit.
2: I just wanna the, the, you know, there's a free ice cream day. I don't like those at all. First of all, I can't eat ice cream, so it doesn't help me. No, but it's this, you know, we we appreciate you so much. Here is your ice cream. I, I really, it's, it's I'm, I, I
1: feel like a child and I- yeah, I'm so, so what would you like them to do?
2: Oh, what would I like them to do? How
1: can they? How yeah. can they convey that they? Well,
2: I think for me, the, the I think for maybe for a lot of us, it's it's uh, time and support. I mean, for me, it's it's very specific things that would be useful. Um, I I now make the joke that um, Outlook, you know, sort of runs my life. If I didn't have Outlook, I don't know what would be going on. And so I think, I mean, this isn't a, this isn't for wellness stuff. So.
1: You know what? I'm I, gonna pass. I, to somebody so, you wanna, do you want to talk about the issue of autonomy? Yeah, and that anybody? That,
3: I would really like it, and I know it's hard to do institutionally, but I would like to see more trust in the people who are doing the work. Mm-hmm. I'd like, I like. <laughs> I, I don't think that's rocket science, but you know, like if, <laughs> if you've been here a while and I know you're doing the right thing, give people a little leeway yes. sometimes, and especially, I think as providers, we get a little more sometimes. It's my medical assistant and my nurses and they get, there's so much crap that rolls downhill on them that I just wish we would say like, I trust you to make the call in this environment without thinking that someone's gonna come behind
5: you and crack the
1: way. So more trust in people, huge.
5: And I would echo that with the addition of Feeling valued for what we do and what we bring, um, and I don't know how an organization can do that because I, I like ice cream too, <laughs> but I, you know, I've actually had some nursing colleagues be a little, sort of upset that they've done all this work, they helped us through the pandemic, and we get an ice cream, right. um, and so there has to be something more yeah. than just the ice cream, and, I, and it's exactly what you were just saying. I think somehow providing a um, this idea that we're valued in a way that we believe. And I think somehow space to do that, um, space to gather, to talk, to, you know, whatever that is, and space can be metaphorical. Um, so I think being valued and having the opportunity to sort of problem solve that ourselves. And maybe that's actually happening and I don't know it, but it doesn't feel like it.
4: Um, for my answer, so I'm going to look at this a little differently. Um, you have to look at what the organizations are there to do. So, hospital systems, academic institutions—what is their function, and what are they there to do? And that often causes, um, you know, uh, stress between what we're there to do and what the organization's job is, or what their main purpose is. You know, money, right? Um, Making money at all costs and cutting corners at all costs. I mean, the organization has a different um, objective than we do. And so I what I've learned to do over time, even you know, being an academic institution, again, is sort of take it on on the, the position that I have, the authority and power that I have within my group to sort of say, well, the organization may not be able to do certain things, but in this capacity, we can do certain things. And I do agree. You know what? And I don't really say I love ice cream, too, but you could keep the money for the ice cream and pay the staff. I would appreciate that better if some of the things that they did, these little things, giving you giving the staff, a, you know, some of this little crap give them money, you know, um, you know, you make the staff feel like you really do value them. Um, and I know that's easier said than done. So, uh, you know, from an organization standpoint, um, I think sometimes we expect them to have the same objectives and goals that we do, but they don't. And so I, that's why I kind of, I, I don't even put that stress on myself, forget you. And then what the uh, ability that I have within this to make, make it better, take my staff with me on uh, like conferences. We do do binding things like that. You know, that, that, that's, that's why I don't put everything on the organization because our objectives and goals are different.
5: Thanks.
0: Well, I, I think there's a theme that's emerging um, that one is to be aware and to recognize the second in yourself and the people around you. I look for a little bit more alignment between whoever they are, the management or wherever, and, and us on the ground. And um, I, I, th- I would say our goals are the same. That's excellence in patient care. But our focus is different by definition because somebody has to watch the bottom line and the money. And sometimes it comes across that that's the only objective. But I think if the leadership is, is skilled at communicating what those stresses are, what those, what the stress is, where, why the money makes a difference and then incorporates that into their messaging or their communication. I think it helps a lot when that's not happening. Then I think it, it devolves into uh, an us versus them. That's not healthy for anybody and especially not healthy for the patients at the end of the day. And then there's structural things like prior authorization was raised a couple of times. We can't get away from that. Even if we had uh, a non fee for service, national health care, there still would be that uh, just part of the nature of managing things.
1: Yeah. So I guess I want to get back to sort of your autonomy point and add to that collaboration. So I agree if there's money, we'd probably rather in people's pockets than for the ice cream and the picnics. No question. And people want more money and they should be getting paid. A lot of health systems are giving less or the same money because of finances, which doesn't make anybody feel valued. Um, But there's a lot of things that can be done that actually don't cost money. If people, if leaders sit down at whatever level and ask for feedback and ask for guidance and incorporate it and do this in a collaborative way. We talk about patient and family centered care, but we don't talk about provider centered care. And I think that we need to also talk about what, we probably have a thousand suggestions for how things could go better in our work site. If people would listen to what we have to say and work with us to change things, actually things would go a lot better. We would be a lot happier. I think it, we're just, we're human, we want to feel like valued, part of being valued is being heard. And being part of being heard isn't just that somebody sits there and listens to you. But they actually make the changes you suggest, not the changes they think should be made based on what your concerns are. And so I feel like to change this, we need it can't be us and them, it must be a we. It must be a we, and we have to work together to make the changes that will make our lives better, which honestly, I believe will take better care of the patients and their families. I don't think in any way those are opposite. I actually think if we're happier, if we feel more connected, if we feel more valued by being listened to, being responded to, not the ice cream, there's nothing wrong with ice cream. I'm not knocking the ice cream. That if it's the ice cream versus making a change that would make my life better every day, I would take the change that would make my life better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so,
0: I was just going to say one similarity between ice cream and money is that you can put them both in your pocket and they disappear. It's just that the ice cream leaves <laughs> a mess.
1: <laughs> okay, now I'm not even going <laughs> <girl>. to touch <laughs> that. So, If you get one message out of this today, I want you or two messages. One is at the individual level, because anybody here is a leader in some way. What's one little thing you can do as a leader to intentionally help people to feel more connected, more valued, and like they belong more and they have more autonomy and control. And the second thing is to work with your teams to convey to who's ever above you and whatever level you're in and whatever systems you're in, that for things to work going forward, that, that your voices must be heard. Thank you very much to all of you.